you don't already have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 11. Go ahead and open up to the passage that, that Daniel just read for us. It's always a really special and unique thing for us to be able to sit together like this and to worship together. I guess the way we would talk about experiences like this in, in our vernacular in the world is uh, it's like a magical thing, but it's better than magical. It's spiritual. It's something that's transformative. And uh, that's always true. But today, especially, I just want to say, I don't know what it was, but man, especially singing it as well with your soul, with my soul. I need to sing that with you guys today. And uh, God bless you for your worship and for encouragement for me, I know, and for all of us sharing that uh, together. The text that Daniel just read for us is... Uh, an interesting one and an important one. It comes at the basically the conclusion of a period of the book of Genesis where everything was bad. Remember in the beginning, God created all things right and good. Uh, he made mankind in his image, and he told mankind to spread out, to fill the earth. More on that in just a second, I think. Um, but they didn't. They didn't listen to God. They disobeyed him time and time again. And disobedience and rebellion against God turned into violence against one another. Cain versus his brother Abel, Lamech with whoever bothered him. All the people in the days of Noah, it was so bad and so wicked that God just had to start the whole thing over. And the, the last line of that reading that, that Daniel brought to us in verse 9, notice what it says there. The place where this, these events occurred was called Babel, which, by the way, was a, the, the prototype or the, uh, the, the predecessor to what would eventually become known as Babylon, eventually in the Bible, right? So Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the whole face of the earth. The word Babel sounds like means confusion. We live in a Babel world. We live in a confused world in every sort of... Uh, I guess every sort of measurement possible. And we feel these things. But man, I tell you what, Babel didn't start off as a very confusing place, did it? As a matter of fact, when you read the beginning of this, at least from all appearances, Babel was about as dreamlike as you could imagine of a place, of a society. And I know if those of you who read the Bible, you know that this is a, a bad, one of the bad stories. But if you could just back up for a second, pretend like you're reading it for the first time, and maybe some of you are reading it for the first time, so good for you. You get to enjoy it this way. But it's actually a really surprising, twisted story, because look at how it starts. In the beginning of the story, all the people have the same language and the same words. Think about how many uh, challenges and problems arise in society because people don't speak the same language and don't have the same words. And I'm even talking about those of us who speak the same language. Uh, English or Spanish or whatever it is that you speak, but we can't speak the same language. You know what I'm saying? Like whenever we're trying to communicate to each other, everybody could. There was free flow communication. Besides that, there was uh, this this uh, force of, of almost like a single will that was moving the people. Notice it said they all had the same language, same words, and they journeyed east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. There was no argument over whether this was the place to be. There was no fight over who was going to get the best land or the worst land or whatever. They just all said, let's all work together. Uh, this society was one of, of great, I don't know what the right word is, maybe inclusivity, uh, maybe um, full participation, maybe to use a Bible word, fellowship. There was a real fellowship among these people. They were all united. And look how you know they're talking to each other. They said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. They used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. There's no arguments. There's no fights. There's no divisions. They're all working on this single project together. Um, you know, God's, God even acknowledges this. Verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. Total, total, a totally idyllic dreamlike society, really, for people to be working together like this. It wasn't just that, but man, there was a real sense of dignity for all people, right? Besides the fact that they were all united, they were uh, dignified in that unity. Notice what it says there, that they had these notions about themselves that were things to achieve um, a greater level than what they were already. It said, come, verse four, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered around, over the whole face of the earth. 
Let's affirm our dignity. Let's actually expand our dignity and, and dignify ourselves in a greater way so that this fellowship, this participation, this inclusive, harmonious society will continue moving forward. That sounds good. Everybody would think of each other in a respectable way to lift each other up. That's literally they're lifting each other up here. Sounds as good as it can get. And boy, one of the most amazing things, they were free. They were free. So free that listen to what God says about them in verse uh, verse six. He says, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Nothing they purpose. That's God. That's not a person saying nothing's impossible. You know, we do that kind of stuff. You fly to the moon. It's like we're never going to stop. We're going to go to Mars or whatever. You know, we do this all this stuff. This is not people saying this. This is God saying that these people, because of this harmonious fellowship that they've developed amongst themselves, the dignity that they are pursuing and sharing amongst themselves. They're free people in the truest sense possible. Nothing will be impossible for them. There's a poet uh, in the mid 20th century. So I'm sure many of you know him, Langston Hughes, who wrote a poem that almost seemed like he was imagining a world like this. He said, I dream a world where a man no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream, where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth and every man is free. Where richness will hang its head and joy like a pearl attends the needs of all mankind. Of such I dream my world. You know, I think if somebody read that in Babel, they'd say, what are you talking about dream, man? That's the world we're living in. That's what we got going on. So why God mess it up? Does that bug you about this? Maybe not. Like I said, if you've read this a bunch of times, you're just like, okay, like God did that. It was bad. Whatever they did, it must have been bad. But why? Because this stuff is a dreamlike society of what was going on in Babel. Well, first off, uh, if we believe, if we have reason to believe in the wisdom of God, then even if there wasn't a clear indication of why, we'd kind of have to say, okay, I don't really get it, but I guess God's smarter than me on this one, and, and that's it. But actually, there's some hints in the text that tell us part of why God messed this up. God didn't mess it up, by the way. They did. One thing in the text that, that uh, it says, is notice the motivation of the people. There, there's really a threefold motivation. One is they said, we do not want to be scattered over the face of the earth. We do not want to be scattered. We want to be in one place all together. Secondly, they said, we want to build this tower to reach into heaven. So where we want to go is not to scatter, to fill the earth, but we want to reach up into heaven. And thirdly, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. So what was wrong with that was, number one, God had told the human race, on multiple occasions, both in the original creation and then in, we might say the rebooted creation, the new heavens and new earth after the flood in Genesis 9, he told people not to congregate in one place, but to scatter, to fill the earth, not to be in one place and fill the earth, not fill the heavens. So in two respects, they took what God told the human race to do and they said, mm, thanks, no thanks. We're not going to fill the earth like you said. And we're not going to stay here. We're going to reach up into the heavens. And besides that, God had given the human race a name or an identity or a sense of worth and meaning, dignity. And they said, no, no, actually, thank you, God. But we would like to make our own measurement of dignity. We'd like to make a name for ourselves. Now, on the surface, it looks like, well, it looks like it was working for him. And it was. But God had already seen this happen before where human beings had rebelled against him. And remember what happened. Those harmonious people, those people that all were dignified and dignifying each other, people who were free became free to violence and free to hate and free to tribalism and free to destruction and self-destruction. God had already seen this. Well, so does that mean that the society in Babel was a bad society or that Mr. Hughes's dream is a bad dream or the dreams that we share with him are bad dreams? I don't think so. I don't think so. What we see in Babel is that the problem is a lot of times we human beings, whether it's an individual dream or societal dream or whatever it may be, we pursue our dreams our way. 
And when we do, the end result is confusion and destruction. And that's what happened here at Babel. God had seen it happen from the garden to the days of Noah, and he was seeing it happen again. And rather than letting human beings rush headlong into our rebellion against him and therefore our destruction amongst ourselves, God said, I'm going to stop it. And he confused the languages to segregate language people groups so that they couldn't join their forces in their evil and fight against one another. So maybe that's God's dream. Maybe that's God's plan. You know what? People are so bad. We're just going to segregate everybody. We're going to divide everybody up. Does that sound right? Could be. Except God is love. And to push people apart is kind of the opposite of love. God's a God of harmony. And so I don't see how people being at odds could really work with that. So this can't be the end of the story. It can't. And it's not, by the way. But I do want to read to you just in, uh, another poem that Mr. Hughes wrote. You know, this, the, the realization, the knowledge that God had uh, is something that we're always following along with, with whatever it may be. Uh, you know, throughout the history of this country, people have longed for the dream, the dream of a place where all people would be free. We fought a war over that in this country against each other to make sure that people would be free. There's a desire for real fellowship, full participation of every member of society. And there were marches and boycotts and speeches and all sorts of things to try to secure that kind of real fellowship and brotherhood amongst people in this nation state. And then we can look around in the past several years and even more intensely in the past several months. The cry has been one for dignity, to dignify and to treat all people with dignity regardless of how much melanin is in their skin or where their, which continent their ancestors came from. Those are good dreams. But the problem with all of them, the reason why all of them fall short, every pursuit of these dreams is because it's just like Babel. In some way, shape or form, all those dreams get pursued in some kind of worldly kind of way. The same man who wrote that poem, I Dream a World, wrote another poem called Harlem. He said this. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? You pick whichever one you think the answer is of what happens to a dream deferred? None of those are good. None of them. And we see that and we know that. And so what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is look at um, the hope that God gives us for a dream. And I'd like all of us to consider that there's, um, it's important that we exchange the worldly dreams or the worldly paths to the dreams that we all have for the hope of God's righteousness. By the way, that's the reason why there was no justice in the early days of creation. There's no righteousness. People weren't doing stuff God's way. So when there's no righteousness with God, there can be no justice among human beings. That's the reason why we see problems around us today. When the righteousness of God is absent, justice in the human race is impossible. So how's God going to fix it? Well, the very next page of the Bible starts the answer. Genesis chapter 12, God goes right back. Centuries have gone by at this point, and people are well divided, and wars are happening, and people aren't harmonious, and people aren't free, and people aren't dignified and dignifying one another. And God goes back to the same place, the same region, at least, not the same exact city, but the Chaldees, the, the region where Babel was. And he goes to a city named Earth of the Chaldees, and he calls a man named Abram, who had become Abraham, we'll call him Abraham, just to... Keep it simple. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go forth, or in other words, leave your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in all in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
in a world devoid of righteousness and therefore um, in the midst of a nightmare, not a dream, not any kind of dream any of us would ever want. God went to this man, Abram, who, uh, though he was perhaps well-to-do and all that stuff, he wasn't anybody. He wasn't a king. He didn't have children, which at that time meant pretty soon his name would evaporate into nothingness. God went to that man just next door to Babel and said, hey, I want to do something with you. Notice he's saying, I want to give the world hope. This world that's divided, this world that's at war, this world that's not one that has or shares the dignity that it should, a world that's not free from the blights of sin and the plague that it creates amongst ourselves. I want to bless all the families of the earth through you. You, verse 2 says, shall be a blessing for all those peoples. And notice it doesn't say a blessing for some or a blessing in different ways to different people. No, no, no. There's this sort of unifying vision that God's painting that all people will be blessed. All the people will be made one, something better, something different. The dream no longer deferred, hope fulfilled. That's what God promised. Notice what it would require. He said to Abraham, you got to leave. You got to get out, man. You're not going to be able to stick around in that home that you have. You're not going to be able to stick around with the people that you have. You got to become somebody who kind of has nobody, just me. And that's what Abraham did. That's what his life was. He didn't have a homeland. He didn't really have a people. He was the start of something brand new. But the problem was Abraham and his descendants, far too often, they didn't fulfill the dream. They didn't. Uh, now, I will say God counted Abraham personally as righteous because he had faith in God. But Abraham made a lot of mistakes and his descendants made even more. And rather than liberating people, they would at times enslave people and they were enslaved. Rather than being people who were those who brought about harmony and real fellowship among their human brothers and sisters, they actually fought wars and were at odds with people, even amongst themselves. They divided even this the family of Abraham when it grew into a nation, split in two. They weren't a nation of real fellowship and participation, inclusivity. It was a tense, divided sort of nation. And dignity, boy, it wasn't there. You read through the story, sometimes people say, the stories of the Bible are so bad. Is God saying that this is okay? No. The reason why they're in there is because God's saying they're not okay. And people were not treated with dignity. And women were abused. And, and the poor were mistreated. And people of any kind were murdering each other and lying about each other and doing all kinds of sorts of things. They weren't achieving the hope that God had of being a blessing. They themselves were participating in the curse of all the problems in this world. God didn't give up on the dream, or he didn't want us to give up on the dream. And he didn't give up on his promise that through Abraham, one day all the nations would be blessed. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 is a reaffirmation centuries later, long after Abraham had been dead, long after his great-grandkids had been dead. The prophet Isaiah spoke and tried to, to rekindle the imagination of the world. Of, God, of the hope that God would give in exchange for the dream that had been lost. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says, This is the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the heart of the nation of Abraham's descendants, these people who were supposed to fulfill God's hope of righteousness, to bring about freedom and fellowship among people and dignity for all. These people need to know something about what's going to go on inside of them. Here's what God said. Even though you're all messed up, now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they're going to hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
Don't you hear? God's promising, I'm giving you hope for this dream. You don't want avarice to blight the day. You want freedom to be in every man's way. I'm telling you, there's going to be a place where that's going to happen. And notice, by the way, how God's using language is very reminiscent of Babel. Remember what the deal was in Babel? Let us build a tower whose heights reach into the heavens. In other words, let's build something that's higher than anything else. What does God say is the location where this good stuff's going to happen? He calls it Zion, which was the place where God's people were. But notice the way he describes it. He says the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up above all the other mountains. In other words, what you thought you were going to do in Babel, I'm going to do it better. Because you had to use bricks for stone. I'm building a mountain, baby. I'm going to make this thing higher than any of the others. And people are going to see this. And it's not just going to be some people that are going to do it. It's going to be all nations. Many peoples will come. Now, the way this is going to work is whenever those people leave the nation behind, just like Abraham had to leave his people, his house, his nation behind to say, hey, I'm going God's way. These people would do the same, leaving the things of the world behind and say, what well, God, what do you say? I love that line at the end, right? Or excuse me, in verse three, come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord that he may teach us concerning his ways. Not like in Babel, not like in Babel where we got together and we said, let us build a tower to make a name for ourselves. Instead, they say, no, no, no. God, you tell us your ways. You tell us your thoughts because your ways are better than ours. Your ways are higher than ours. We just want to come to that. And what happens is a beautiful thing. It's not people coming together for war or for some sort of compromises. And that's what, that's the best we can do here is tense compromises between peoples who are different in this world. No, not here. People take their swords and they don't just store them just in case we need them for later. They say, no, we don't need these things anymore, man. Let's turn them into something, something that was used for destruction. Let's use it for something to bring growth and productivity and beauty. The pruning hooks and the shovels to be able to build up a new world. That's what God gives us here. That's the hope that God points us to. It says, come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Forget about Babel. Forget about the hopes, or excuse me, the dreams of this world and give it up for the hope that God gives us for those who have faith in him. Very similar language in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, it's a little different. In Isaiah 2, the portrait is everybody coming to God's house, right? God's there and he's administering teaching. In Isaiah 11, it's the portrait of God's king who would sit on the throne, King Jesus. This passage is referred to in the New Testament to show us that it's talking about Jesus, who would be one of wisdom and of righteousness and of justice, who would judge all the peoples fairly with equity. And look what will happen. Isaiah 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And you want to talk about trippy dreams. This is one right here. What are you talking about? This is like a Dr. Doolittle story. How is this even possible? All of that is not talking about how there's going to be a really cool zoo in heaven. I don't think that's the point here at all. I think the point is, look at people who would have been at odds, people who were just intrinsically, fundamentally different carnivores and herbivores, predators and prey, all one, all one in this holy mountain. Verse nine, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. People will know the righteousness of God. People will find the truth and be able to escape the confusion and the division and the hate and the problems of Babel in the mountain of God. So flip over to Isaiah 51. There's some, there's some calls to action here for how we should think and how we should live for these people that God is trying to recapture the, the hope that's even greater than any dream human beings have come up with for how the world can work. Isaiah 51 and verse one says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. He was one man in the middle of a world with a lot of divided people and different people and a place where he didn't receive dignity from others. He wasn't free to be and to do all the things that he would want to be and do, including just having a child. He wasn't someone who was able to have a really 
tight, harmonious relationship with the neighbors around him. He was always sort of an outsider, always sort of the strange one. Look at what he did. God took him when he was just that one. Then I blessed him and I multiplied him. I turned him into something else. And y'all remember that promise was a part of a bigger package that if I blessed him and multiplied him, I was not going to bless him, but bless all the nations through him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. The Lord will comfort or strengthen that mountain where all peoples and all nations will come to be ruled by the king of kings so that the lion and the lamb will lie down together and they'll be led by a little child where no one hurts and destroys in the holy mountain Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness he will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of a melody, a melody, no more confusion, no more babbling anymore. Joy and gladness. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light for the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Isn't this what we're all dreaming of? A world where we're not wondering what's the next thing that's going to happen to the Capitol building. A world where we're not sitting on pins and needles waiting for the next video to drop of a person being abused and mistreated. A world where you feel like you could pick up a paper or get on social media and you don't think that everybody's going to be arguing about something, whatever it may be. God says, I've got that world Go cooking. I've got it. But it's only for those who submit to my righteousness. Because the justice you long for in this world is impossible apart from the righteousness that I'm providing. But I will. And I'll save you from all this bad stuff. Flip over a page to Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Listen to what it says. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, who announces peace and who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Listen. Your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. They'll see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. The righteousness of God is coming. That's what the prophet said. That promise to Abraham, the hope that God gave the world to that one man next door to Babel, it's coming true. It's going to come true. Listen to it. Rejoice in it. Find your peace in it. You're going to be saved if you let God do it. But here's the catch. Verse 11. Depart. Depart. Just like Abraham needed to go out, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and you go out too. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste. In other words, you're not going to be running for your life. Nor will you go as fugitives. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You know, it's a scary thing. I guess it must have been scary. We don't, I don't, we're not told what Abraham's emotions are, but I can't imagine that it wasn't a scary thing that first day. God said, go out. Go out. Where are we going, Lord? Not going to tell you, but I'll show you. You just got to go. It's a scary thing to step aside from the world, to really live a righteous life, to encourage the righteousness of God and those around. That's a scary, frightful thing because we're, we can see some things that we could trust in. We can see some things that we could imagine. We can turn into a dream. But man, the hope that God gives us is something that's built on faith. It's built on going wherever he goes. Doing however he does, listening to him, not listening to ourselves, not listening to each other, not saying, come, let us build a tower that will reach up into heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. No, God says, I'll make a name for you. But you have to trust me. You have to go out, touch nothing unclean and go my way. Like God always does. He blazed the path for us. It wasn't just Abraham who would do this. The text continues and says, behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And just as many were astonished at you, my people, for the great confusion, devastation, destruction, trouble. So his appearance was marred more than any man. 
and his form than the sons of men. Whatever injustices, whatever destruction, whatever pain, whatever death has come upon any individuals, any people, groups, society as a whole, the world as a whole, the servant of God, Jesus the Christ, took it on himself. And thus, he will sprinkle, or uh, maybe to put it in the language of what that would mean for these people, to sprinkle us to, to atone for, to restore, to purify, to save. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Those many nations that God had promised to Abraham that he was going to fix up, that he was going to bless, the Messiah would come to do that. For all who would go out from this world, for all who would have faith in God, for all who would seek the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, it would be available to them all. And kings, those who thought they could fix the world or those who thought they could build towers up into heaven and get us where we need to go and make a name for ourselves, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Isaiah 53 then details the, the pain and the trials of the Messiah. But I'd like you to skip to chapter 54 and verse 1 to hear the conclusion of it all. All that pain, all that suffering, the life that Jesus Christ lived, the death that he died, the shame he endured, the, the fact that he was treated like a slave. He died a slave's death. He wasn't free in his death. He was stripped naked and he was abused and mocked and murdered. He was someone who people didn't see the love and the harmony that he was trying to bring, but instead they treated him like a faulty note and they just pushed him on the outside, making him suffer outside the city gate, not being in with everyone else. And man, you want to talk about indignity. He suffered it to the greatest extent in every respect throughout his life and in his death. But after that story gets prophesied in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54 and verse one starts this way. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate will be more numerous than the sons of the married. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. In other words, get a bigger, bigger, bigger house because you're going to have more and more people coming in. Strengthen your pegs because you're going to spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. What, what just happened? Did we just teleport into a whole nother thing? Like I thought the story was one of coming out of this world and the pain and suffering that the Messiah would do to rescue people from this world, how hard that is. And then, bam, joy, be happy. Great things are happening. Why is that? What Isaiah is telling us here is something that those of us who are in Christ know to be true now. The suffering of Christ, though, is certainly a tragedy and a shame to all of us that God had to send his son to die for our sins. It's the reason for every joy and hope that we have. And that's the only response we should have. The Babel solutions lead to confusion. I mean, not, not always and not for a while. Remember, Babel was great for a while. But eventually they rip away joy. They eliminate the possibility of peace because it's not being sought in the way God designed things to be. We're going against the very creator who made us in his image. Whenever we reject his righteousness, injustice is the only possibility. But because of the sacrifice of Christ and the righteousness of God through him, Justice and peace, harmony, freedom, dignity, love, all those things, they're not just dreams for us. They're hopes that are secure, hopes that are coming true and will come true to the fullest. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul wrote a good bit about this. I want to notice a couple of texts and then bring it home with some things that I think are helpful for us to think about with this. In Galatians chapter 3. Check out Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Paul had this whole story in mind. By the way, here's what was going on in the church in, in Galatia, in the churches of Galatia. There were some people who said, hey, you need to um, convert to basically become a Jew if you want to have God's blessings in your life. In other words, there's one ethnic group that's important, and all the rest of y'all ethnic groups need to huddle up around them and get in line, or else you're less than. Right? Well, that was a 
there's a lot of things wrong with that, a lot of mistakes about that. Uh, namely, that they thought they, they were the ones who were going to bring about God's righteousness. They thought the way that they were doing things was going to fix what was wrong in the world. But God said, no, I sent Christ to do that. Christ died for all people because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All need the righteousness of God. All require justification. And it doesn't come through any people group or any assembly of people groups. A bunch of people saying, you know what? We can fix ourselves. We can find some solutions for what's wrong. With no, God says. Listen to what he says in chapter 3 as he builds his argument. Galatians 3 and verse 6. He says, even so, Abraham believed. Abraham went out. Abraham trusted in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it's those who are of faith, who are the children, the descendants of Abraham, the people who are cut from that rock, as Isaiah would say. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the nations, the Gentiles, by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the faithful. Verse 13 continues as he tells us, shows us how Christ fits into this story, that the hope that God promised to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ because, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He bore the unrighteousness of us. He bore the injustice of our world to, in order to correct it, in order to bring us home. Verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing for all nations, the blessing of a dream fulfilled, not a dream deferred, would come to the nations so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, who's it for? Look at verse 25. Verse 25 of Galatians 3. It says, but now that faith has come, that faith that made Abraham righteous, that faith that God said, this is where hope will come from for all the nations. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. There's nothing that we need to do to kind of be trained up to get it. We've got it in Jesus Christ. For you are all children of God. You are all one family. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one. Or I think the way to read that is you are all one and the same. Certainly one body, one united. But you are all one and the same. All those things that would differentiate. Black and white and rich and poor and uh, all the things, whatever you fill in the blank with, whatever. All, no, no, no. In Jesus Christ, you're all one and the same. And therefore, you're one people because God has made a name for you. And that name is child, child of God who loved you enough to send his son to die for your sins. That's the promise of God. Verse 29, since you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. You're a part of that blessing, not only to receive, but also to give. Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of all things, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, under the Babel things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see how Jesus Christ has brought all of our dreams that we might have tried to pursue, like we did try to pursue back at Babel? God has made the hope fulfilled. Fellowship, we got it, baby. We're in the family of God. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We see that in each other. Freedom, we cry out, Abba, Father. We're not enslaved to the things of this world anymore. We're not enslaved to our sin. We're not enslaved to the flesh or any of that stuff because we're free in Jesus Christ. And dignity, what's more dignified than being able to say to all the cosmos that you're a son of God? What's better than that? What is it? Chapter 5. Verse one, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Verse five, for we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, or we might say no association with any people group or outside of any people group. That doesn't mean anything. But faith working through love. That's where the hope is. 
the hope of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Uh, all right, so what does this mean for us? American Christians, almost say living in 2020. Doesn't it feel like you're still living in 2020? You know what I'm saying? But whatever it is, whatever year we're in, whatever time we're in, what does this mean for us? Uh, the book of Galatians gives us some clues to this. So I just want to give you uh, three brief ideas for how we should let the hope of righteousness for ourselves personally and for the world as a whole, how that should drive our perspective and our character, our mentality, and our relationship to the world. First of all, because of the hope of righteousness in Jesus Christ, I should consider my brothers in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as my truest fellows. You know what I'm saying? That's my real fellowship. I've thought about this a lot uh, more the past few years. I used to use the word like uh, brother a lot to talk about just kind of anybody. And then I started realizing how sacred of a term it is in the New Testament. That, that it really, really means something. And by the way, if you say brother to somebody who's not a Christian, I'm not going to beat you up for it. I don't think you're a bad Christian for that. I'm just telling you, for me, I've had to kind of reserve that word. That that's not just for anybody. That's not for people that are my good friends, but they're not in Christ. Or people that share some you know, worldly connection to me, but they're not in Christ. That's not really my brotherhood. You know, our real fellows are those who are in Jesus Christ. There's two reasons why this is important. One, whenever we remember this, it protects us from feeling too closely associated with any kind of worldly uh, 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 movement, ideals, people groups, whatever. And that's a danger. The world's always pulling on us. You need to be in this group. You need to think like this. You need to talk like this. You need to sign on for this, whatever. And frankly, a lot of that stuff is not stuff that's for us. It may have some things that are tangentially related or even meaningfully related to us. But if there's some stuff mixed in that's not of God, it's not righteous. It's Bible stuff. It's not faith stuff. It's not the righteousness of God. And so I don't need to consider myself connected or partnered with those kinds of people. groups. Frankly, that's why I don't have a problem again if I, you say you're an American or I say I'm an American. I do too. I'm thankful to be an American. But I also need to really guard myself. That's not my brotherhood. I'm not a part of the brotherhood of America because my brotherhood, my real brotherhood in Jesus Christ has people in Russia. It has people in, uh, well, I'm just not going to list off a bunch of uh, countries, every place around the world. You know what I mean? So that's not my brotherhood. And I got to watch out. I got to protect my heart against thinking I'm a part of some Babel group that may be doing some good stuff, but that's not really my, those aren't my true fellows. That's not my real fellowship. Now, the reason you may say, well, that seems a little annoying and picky like to be like that. Why can't if there's some good stuff going on, why can't I post like that group and tweet like that group and you know campaign for the same kinds of things? Well, first off, I'm not your judge. I'm not telling you can't. I'm just warning you against it. I don't think it's ideal. I don't think it's really the best way to maintain your sense of fellowship in Christ. And here's what happens. Whenever I get really devoted to worldly fellowship groups, Bible fellowship. I'm not going to have the right kind of fellowship with my brethren. You know, this happened actually in the book of Galatians. In chapter two, Paul tells a story right as he preaches the gospel, I might say, for the first time in the book of Galatians, maybe second time. He tells a story about Peter. Peter knew Jesus, preached the gospel to all nations in Acts 2, went to the Gentiles in Acts 10. You know, Peter, the one. And Peter came to the city of Antioch, and there were a lot of non-Jews that were Christians. And Peter would sit and eat with them, which is kind of the basis level of fellowship. There's much more meaningful things in our fellowship. But that's one, sitting at the table together to share our hearts and our lives together. And uh, so, so there Peter is. He's eating with them. But then some guys who thought, no, 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 if you're going to be in God's group, you've got to adhere to certain ethnic standards and all this kind of stuff. People who really consider them fellows with the Jewish nation more so than with Jesus even. They came along and Peter all of a sudden was like, oh, hey, guys, I know we were eating together before, but I can't. I can't eat with you guys because these guys came. So I've got to, they're, you know, they're my brothers. That's my, I've got to go sit with them. If you partner your heart, your mentality, your life, your actions with fellowships of the world, Babel fellowship, eventually you're going to have to choose between your fellowship in Christ, those who you are one with, and your fellowship in the world. And which one's it going to be? whether that's socially, politically, economically, generationally, in terms of interest, in terms of whatever, it may be your job, whatever, I've got to say that's not my brotherhood there. That's not the fellowship I'm really a part of. 
Paul said, this is such a serious thing. Peter was not walking in step with the gospel and he stood to be condemned. That's how serious it is. The hope of righteousness means that my brothers and sisters in Christ are my truest fellows. The second thing I'll say is that the hope of righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ means that we should live with the full assurance of our dignity in Christ. And also we should dignify every person that we know because of Christ. Here's what I mean. I'm not waiting on, I'm not trusting in any people to affirm dignity or to bring dignity to myself. If I'm in Christ, I can't, I can't let that be the thing. Now, look, do we want the world to do that? Absolutely. Should we do our part? I'm coming more to that in just a second. But my point is, Paul was talking to people who were not dignified in their culture, who were structurally and actively pressed down in their culture. That text at the end of chapter three, are you there still? That list of people are people that the world said were not worth it. They did not have a name that was worthy of honor or fair treatment or any kind of justice. And Paul says, you are a child of God. Don't listen to that noise. And you hold firmly to the freedom of the dignity of being one of God's children. You keep crying out to your Abba. You are not a slave to those elements of the world and of the earth, those base things that are meaningless. Embrace and hold firmly to that dignity that we have in Jesus Christ. But notice, we could say, yeah, that's right. So here it is. It's like, oh, yeah, the white guy is saying, like, oh, don't worry about it. People don't dignify you. The white guy is already dignified. True enough in this country for now and probably for a long time. Uh, But so here's the thing I need to hear on this. If I feel that the world does dignify me, I don't need to rejoice in that. I don't need to celebrate that or, or feel that somehow makes me special or whatever. The only dignity I have is in Christ and whatever dignity I have in Christ, I better be extending it. To all people. Listen to what it says in uh, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Am I dignified in Christ? You better believe it. You are too if you're in Jesus Christ. So what do I do about that? Do I just sit around and feel like, oh, cool, I'm fine? No, I love my neighbor as myself. Whatever dignity I have in Christ, I want to love them as he has loved me. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Look at the beginning of chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter six and verse uh, nine. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good. Let us express dignity. Let us dignify the intrinsic worth of all people especially those of the household of faith. After all, they are the children of God. But it says all people. Are you living that way? The hope of righteousness means that I myself, I'm not going to get worked up, nervous, upset, angry about the indignities that this world brings upon people. What I'm going to do is I'm going to channel whatever emotions, whatever pain, whatever hurt into loving, into serving into doing good to all people because of the dignity that's provided for me and for all who are in Jesus Christ. At least the last thing, because really everybody could have that dignity. Everybody could be a part of this fellowship, but they're not. So not only do I need to embrace the freedom I have, but like Isaiah said, I need to have some of those beautiful feet that go proclaim on the mountaintops in every village, in every hamlet, in every city, in every state, everywhere, to everyone, proclaim the freedom of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Paul, who was a man who had a lot going for him in this world, a man that in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. In other words, I look at the world and all that stuff, all the Bible stuff, all the dreams of the world, you know, that's kind of dead to me. That's not the stuff I'm living. So I got the hope of righteousness. I'm crucified to the world. And also, excuse me, the world is crucified to me. And also when the world looks at me, I'm crucified to the world. I'm dead to the world. I'm not in this stuff because I'm boasting about something different than the Bible stuff of this world. I'm boasting of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm boasting of the freedom of the hope 
of righteousness. I'm boasting that I'm a child of God and you can be too. Why don't you get on over here and have faith in Jesus Christ? Go out just like Abraham. Go out, depart, touch nothing unclean. Be saved because your God reigns and he wants to reign in your life. He wants to free you from sin. He wants to free you from death. He wants to liberate you from the curse so that you can be saved. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. Any of the stuff in the world that could save us or make us right, so we think. None of that stuff means anything. Here's the one thing that matters. The new creation in Jesus Christ. He says this at the end to cap off the way he started this letter. Last text, Galatians chapter 1. I'll read this uh, as Paul summarizes the gospel story at the very, very beginning of this letter. As he sings his freedom song to encourage his readers to embrace the real hope, to give up on the dreams of being a Jew, to give up on the dreams of whatever the world might offer, to give up on the dreams of Babylon, whatever dreams we might have for fixing things, they're always going to be deferred as long as they're the dreams of this world. And they do sag like a heavy load. They do rot and they stink. They do become something just dried up, shriveled up without any, any there's no juice to squeeze out of it to give us joy and gratitude and any good stuff. And eventually the dreams of this world will, in every person's life and in every society, the dreams deferred do and will explode. But not the hope that we have. Not the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, who's given us an undeserved, absolutely gracious dignity to be sons of God right next to him. The hope of righteousness that we have bringing us together as one making us God's fellows and therefore in fellowship, in harmony with one another and free, free. Galatians 1 verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. If we can use our language, Paul says, to rescue us or to liberate us, to free us from the evils of this age. So that's the freedom we sing. That's the freedom we hope in. And that's the freedom we proclaim. And can I challenge you and ask you, are you proclaiming that freedom? First to yourself. Every time you're bothered, and man, there's so many bothersome things. Every time another dream is deferred, every time you feel that load on your back of just all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. Are you singing that freedom song? And what about to your friends and neighbors who are lost and alone and confused because they're living in Babel? What song are you singing? God didn't free us just so we could have it to ourselves. God has called us to make freedom ring. To make freedom ring in this city, in every borough, and in every nation on all the earth. To let freedom ring so that all of God's children all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and have been clothed with him in baptism, so that all of God's children, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, old and young, will all have the hope now and one day see the hope fulfilled in the resurrection where we'll all join our resurrected hands together and we'll sing the words of the old spiritual. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.